And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said, Follow me. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are all well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did, and what he, and what he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abath- Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. 
Here at Sanctuary Church, we love to have our kids with us during the entire service, and we especially speak to our children at the very beginning of the sermon. And so, kids, today we begin with a financial lesson, a lesson about money. Does anybody know what debt is? D-E-B-T, debt. Yes. Very good. You owe somebody, in this case often money. If you owe somebody money, you are in debt. In our family, we recently visited New York City, and we're just walking around the city, having a good time, exploring all the different places that the city has to offer, and we came across the National Debt Clock. Has anybody ever seen that? Are you familiar with this? It tracks, this is electronic sign in Midtown that tracks a running tally of our national total debt, and then it tells you what your personal family share is in the national debt. And there's an online version of this. You can go to it. It's at usdebtclock.org. It's rather depressing, actually, so I don't know if I'd recommend you going to it, but it's there. And as of 625 this morning, and it's very important because this clock is changing all the time. So as of 625 a.m. this morning, does anybody have a guess the total amount of United States debt? 31 trillion. 31 Anybody else? Can anybody be more precise than that? Close. Very close. Someone might have stolen the manuscript. Very, $31 trillion, not $31.2 trillion, which comes out to roughly $100,000 per United States citizen, $250,000 per U.S., I'm sorry, $50,000 per U.S. taxpayer. That's a lot of money. $31 trillion of debt in America. And can I, or any of us for this matter, can say, wow, that's a lot of money. I don't think it's a good idea for the U.S. to be in that much debt. So America, your debt's wiped away. They're all forgiven. Can I do that? No. I don't have the authority to do that. And why? The only people who can forgive a debt are the people who own the debt. You have to own the debt in order to be able to forgive it. For example, a large portion of our United States debt is owned by foreign countries. You might not have realized that. Does anybody know which country, as of the end of 2020, is the largest holder of U.S. debt? You would think. Very close. They're actually second... Japan, Mr. McConnell, for the win. Japan is the largest holder of American debt. So Japan, they could say, you know what, America? Lots of goodwill. We appreciate everything you have done for us. We are going to cancel or forgive all your debt. They could do that. They could take the $2 trillion that the U.S. owes them, and they could cancel that debt. What about if we take an example that might be a little closer to home? What if, let's say, for instance, Catherine owes Jack $10? And Janie goes up to Jack and says, Jack, I forgave Catherine's debts. She doesn't owe you any money anymore. Catherine, your debt is forgiven. How do you think Jack would feel? Is he happy? Does Janie have any authority whatsoever to forgive someone else's debts? No. 
you have to own the debt in order to be able to forgive the debt. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, but we're not just talking about money. Actually, we're talking about something far more important than money. Because this morning, we're talking about forgiveness and the debt of sin that everybody owes. And just like debt, the only, only the person or party wronged can forgive. So you must own, remember, you must own the debt to forgive the debt. And think, how does that relate to this idea of forgiveness and the debt of sin that everybody owes to God? So please pray with me. Dearly Father, as we come before you this morning, as we look into your word in Mark chapter 2, as we begin thinking about the great and overwhelming debt that our country has financially, if, our, if we begin to think about the debt that our sin owes before you, we are overwhelmed. We feel very similarly. How can we repay this debt? Help us to see in your word that this debt is something far greater than we could ever repay. But it's something that Christ has freely and fully repaid for us on our behalf. In order that all our debts might be paid. And we might be restored in a relationship with you. Help us to see Jesus more clearly as he is as we go th- continue to work through the Gospel of Mark. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so t- this morning we'll be focusing on the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2, typically called uh, Jesus' healing of the paralytic. And so I'm going to begin by reading again the first five verses for us. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he, that is Jesus, was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And we're not told who these people are, but it says they came. They brought him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Uh, Now, this might require a little explanation about kind of what common architecture is like at that time period. Um, So in a typical, I think most people assume this is kind of a typical structure. And so you have about 50, uh, space for about 50 people inside. So imagine the whole entire house is crammed. On the outside, uh, you have stairs leading up to the roof. And most of these roofs are actually more like rooftop decks. You kind of see them in houses these days now, too. Like people will build a deck that's on the roof of their house to overlook Austin or whatever. That is similar to what you'd have in Israel at that time period. So the roof was actually a place that people would congregate. Sometimes people go to pray or do different activities like that. So these individuals, they go up the stairs on the side of the house, and they go onto the roof. And the roof is typically made of mud. It's like hardened, dried mud. So when when it says that they removed the roof, it actually says they, they were digging the roof. They had to dig the roof out from up under them to create a hole in order to, as it says, when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as I said, this morning's sermon today is going to be about forgiveness. But before we get there, I'd like to spend a few moments talking about friendship. Because even though it's not the main point of this passage, here in Mark chapter 2, we have this beautiful picture of what friendship in the family of God is intended to look like. And I think if there's anything that our world needs more of, it's true forgiveness, but it's also true friendship. So there are four things I see here about the friendship that Mark describes between these four men and the paralytic. First, 
This is an inconvenient and one-sided friendship. This isn't like friendships of convenience or utility that so often mark our own present friendships. What does this other person have that they can help me get? So I'm going to become their friend. But what can the paralytic offer to these four men? Not much. All he can offer them is his need that he has for them to help him. These are men or friends with a paralytic who can likely offer them very little in return. Secondly, this is a friendship that likely bears social stigma. Back at that time, it was a common belief that if you had a condition like paralysis, that it was either a direct or indirect result of some sort of sin against God, either you or your parents or your family. In a sense, people like that were cursed. No one wanted to be around them. Yet what did these four men do? These four men gather around this man. They pick him up and take him to Jesus. Because this is, number three, a friendship that will go to great lengths for the good of another person. And fourthly, this is a friendship whose ultimate aim is to always bring the other person to the only one who can truly help them. That is Jesus. I can't help think if the Apostle Paul might have been thinking of this passage, what Jesus had done when he writes in Galatians at the beginning of chapter 6. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, but in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, all of us are called at various times to both be the friends who are carrying the mat, as well as sometimes the man on the mat. None of us wants to be the man on the mat, I'll tell you that. All of us initially, I think, are hearing this message that, you know what, I want to be that friend who helps other people. I want to be that kind of friend who will go to great lengths for the sake of another, to bring other people to Jesus, no matter what cost. Like, that is an inspire. I want to be that kind of person. But we all have to recognize that at many times in our life, we'll also have to be the paralytic, the man on the mat, needing the assistance of friends who share our faith. You see, all, many of us have a desire not to be seen as needy. I don't know if, I think I'm like that sometimes. Very eager to give help to others, but very slow to receive help, even when I need it. But what's abundantly clear from Mark chapter 2 is that this paralytic, he can't do it himself. He needs help. He needs his friends. He has no chance of encountering Jesus without the help of his friends. And so one mini application this morning is to ask yourself whether you have friends like these men. And are you a friend like these men to other people? Do you seek to cultivate friendships even with those who can't offer you any worldly benefits in return? In which the primary goal of that friendship is to go to great lengths to overcome all obstacles to bring these people to Jesus. That's what those four men did for their friend the paralytic who could offer them nothing in return. So that's just a little bit about friendship. I thought that was just a beautiful picture that Mark gives us. It's not his main intention. But through it, we see what friendship is supposed to look like in the family of God. But Mark's main message for us this morning, I think, is this idea of forgiveness. And that's where we're going to turn to now. Verse 5 again, I'll read. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, remember we met them last week, 
Some of the scribes were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes are furious that Jesus is equating himself with God in claiming to be able to forgive sins. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves, or questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, the first thing to note is that the scribes are wrong, but they're not completely wrong. And what I mean by that is the scribes are wrong in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, but they're not wrong in saying that only God alone can forgive sins. They're right in that belief. When the scribes say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They are 100% absolutely correct. And the reason why the Bible says God alone can forgive sin is because God alone holds the sin debt. You can only forgive the debt if it belongs to you. God alone holds the debt of our sin. And this can be a really difficult concept for us to accept, especially when you've been wronged. Because when you've been wronged, when you have been sinned against, what does it feel like? I hold the sin debt. This person, whether it's my brother, my sister, my spouse, my coworker, my colleague, a stranger, this person has wronged me, therefore I hold the sin debt against this other person. And it's my choice of whether I can forgive, choose to forgive them or not. That's not what the Bible says. In the clearest place we see this in Scripture, and one of the best places in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, especially verse 4, and I'll read it for us this morning. This is King David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know all of my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Here's verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you know when David writes this psalm? I don't know if you ever read in the Bible, there's these superscriptions. Basically, it's at the beginning of the psalm. It says something like, a psalm of David, when this happened, or according to this music. This is Psalm 51, and the superscription reads thus, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So if you're not familiar with this story, it comes from 2 Samuel. And a real quick overview of the story is David is the king. He's looking out over his kingdom one day. He's on his roof, and in the distance, he sees a woman named Bathsheba. He desires that woman. He says, bring that woman to me. He has relations with that woman. That woman gets pregnant. That woman is married. His, her husband is out on the battlefield. So David brings back her husband and says, why don't you spend time with your wife, hoping to cover up his sin? But his wife's name is... Uh, her wife's, or her husband's name is Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah says, no. How could I be with my wife when all of the soldiers are out in the field risking their lives? I can't do that. And so what David does is he sends Uriah to the front lines where he's almost guaranteed to be killed. And he is killed. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet, God inspires Nathan to come to David to bring conviction of David's sin. And I'm going to read, read that for us this morning. 
So after David does all these things, the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to David. And Nathan says to him, he tells David a story. The story goes like this. There's two men in a certain city. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man had very many flocks and very many herds, but the poor man had nothing. Nothing except one little lamb. And he loved that lamb. He brought up that lamb. It grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. This lamb was like a daughter to the poor man. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man, like all of us are. All of our anger is greatly kindled against that rich man who took the poor man's lamb, the lamb that it loved so much. David's furious. He says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan turns around to King David and he says, You are the man. David, you're the man in the story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you, David, king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, you gave, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you so much more. It's like, David, I gave you everything. And I'll give you so much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You know one of the most common ways that the Bible describes King David? It says David was a man after God's own heart. Does that mean that David was perfect? No. What it means is that David had a spirit of repentance. Because right after he's confronted by Nathan... Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Twice we see once in response to Nathan's parable, and then again here in Psalm 51, David acknowledges that he has sinned against God. Of course, he's committed atrocious sins against Bathsheba. He's sinned against Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And he'll experience consequences for his actions if you read the rest of David's story. But the Bible teaches us that the, true, the path to true healing and forgiveness only begins in the recognition that one's sin is before our holy creator God, before anyone else. And this idea is tremendously offensive, especially in our world today. Because we, in our world, we live in a world that's removed all sense of the transcendence, all sense of duty, moral obligation before one's God. And it's why our culture is so incapable of forgiveness and instead moves toward things like judgment, retribution. But if we're to live biblically, then we have to recapture the truest and deepest sense of our sin, which is when we sin, we first and foremost sin against God. Our sin has earthly consequences. We hurt the ones that we love. We hurt those that we don't love. But at at the end of the day, those are secondary consequences. 
And if you address the secondary consequences without addressing the root sin against God, then you have not been truly forgiven. And you might feel a sense of comfort for a time, but it's a false comfort. So when you understand and accept all of your sin as first and foremost against God, then two things will happen in your life. So if you accept your sin first as God above all, two things will happen. Number one, the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus Christ will be so much more sweeter and so much more precious in your life. And number two, you then will more freely and more joyfully forgive others when they sin against you. So first, the gospel is going to be sweeter to you, which I think we all want. And number two, when the gospel is sweet to us, then we find it a joy to forgive others. So first, the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus will be more sweeter and more precious to you. So you think about it. Think about your own life. What is the ratio between the wrong things you do and how many times you ask for forgiveness? All right, so on, on the one side, you have everything wrong that you do, all the ways in which you sin against God, against others. And on the other side, you have the number of times which you actually ask for forgiveness, either from God or from others. Are those two sides in any way equal in your life? Now, if we just take the second half of the Ten Commandments, usually when people talk about the Ten Commandments, they say the first half is about your relationship with God. Right, honor the, <clears throat> uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make images of me. The second half typically deals with relationships between people as a way of expressing honoring God. So let's just take the second half of the Ten Commandments and go through them. The ones that deal with interpersonal relationships. So every time you dishonor your father or mother, every time you dishonor which means let's say they tell you to do something or you don't or you disrespect them you disrespect them you respond to them in a way that you should not every time you do that whether verbally or even in your heart do you ask for forgiveness and that applies not just to the children among us but us as well every time you get angry with someone every time you hate them in your heart Do you ask for forgiveness? Every time you lust after someone, do you ask for forgiveness? Every time you take something that does not belong to you, do you ask for forgiveness? Every time you tell a big lie or even a little white lie, do you ask for forgiveness? And the last one, the last commandment that says you shall not covet anything that's not yours, the one that seems to just cover everything else, Every time you're jealous of someone else, every time you want something that someone else has but you don't, do you ask for forgiveness? If you're like me, the answer is most of the time, no. I ask forgiveness when I'm caught. Or I ask forgiveness when someone says, hey, you really hurt me. I have to admit, I say I'm sorry. Or if you're like many children, you only ask forgiveness when your parents tell you to ask for forgiveness. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. But if your parents don't tell you, or if you don't get caught, or if someone doesn't tell you that they hurt, if someone doesn't tell you that you hurt them, do you ask for forgiveness? 
But when we realize that all of those things from above, that we should ask for forgiveness but rarely do, when we realize that all of those are sins first and foremost against God, we realize that we're continually just heaping up every day our sin debt against God. Do you feel the weight of that? And I would argue that you won't know the true beauty of the freedom of forgiveness in Jesus Christ unless you first feel the weight of that. Do you remember the debt clock that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? Perhaps it's the most distinctive feature, I think, is that it's running continuously. Like, if you go on that website I told you about that tracks the debt, like, you can't even... um, stop and see what the debt is at because the clock is running so fast. Every second, the United States is going further and further into debt. And as you watch that clock, you get a very real sense that it's never going to get out of debt. The United States will never be out of debt. You just watch it grow and grow. And perhaps you know what it's like to be in financial debt where you owe more money than you have or the capacity to pay back. And I think it's debilitating. It's frightening. It's terrifying. You feel powerless and you feel hopeless. And the question is, do you feel this sense before God when you see your sin debt growing and growing and growing? What is your hope? It's Mark chapter 2, verse 8 through 12. Jesus says this, Immediately Jesus, perceiving his spirit, that they thus question within themselves and to them, says, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. The paralytic rises. He immediately picks up his bed. He went out, went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The point that Jesus is making here is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But it's actually harder to do Because forgiveness always comes with a cost. In order for there to be forgiveness, a price must be paid. And that is the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And the rest of the gospel, Mark will make it clear. Why does Jesus have this authority to forgive sins? It's because he submits himself to the cross. God grants Jesus authority to forgive sins on earth because he is worthy. And Jesus shows his worthiness by obeying God and submitting himself all the way to the cross. The cross of Christ is the cost of forgiveness. The cross of Christ is the cost of our forgiveness. That huge sin debt that we were talking about that all of us have before God, piling up higher and higher every moment, despite our best efforts. Here's what the Bible says that happened to that sin debt on the cross. This is from Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. Paul's writing, You, you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You're dead. You had no hope. But God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
on the cross, God, Jesus took all of your debt against him and he nailed it to the cross. They're completely and fully forgiven. And he said, your sins are forgiven. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And when you understand that, when the gospel is so precious to you because you know everything that you've ever done against God, he has forgiven you in Christ. When you know that, when you understand that, you will more freely and more joyfully forgive others even when they sin against you. Because when you choose not to forgive somebody, and that's a choice that a lot of us make a lot of the time, when you choose not to forgive someone, what you're really saying is that you don't believe that their sin is ultimately against God. You're saying, Jesus doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. I have the authority to forgive sins. You're also saying you don't believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover over that person's wrong. That what they have done to you, perhaps, is so wrong, so heinous, so undeserved, so unprovoked, that even Christ's death is not enough for them. Their record of debt still stands. There has to be another price to be paid. And the Bible is unequivocal in stating that if you feel that way, if you believe that to be true, that Christ is not enough, that there's another price to be paid, then you yourself have not been truly forgiven. You have not understood the gospel of Jesus Christ because when you understand how you have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God, how you have been freely and fully forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross, then you can't withhold forgiveness to others. You too will forgive others freely and fully and it becomes a joy to forgive others. You see, our, our forgiveness that we give to others, it's what they call like approximate forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that's a sign that points other people to the forgiveness that all of us need before God. That's why, as Christians, we can forgive people even when they don't ask for forgiveness. We can forgive people even when they don't ask for forgiveness because when you do that, you're admitting that I'm not the judge. I'm not the authority. But Jesus is. There is a, there is a judge, one who is just and righteous but merciful and forgiving and loving and when you forgive other people you point people to that judge so church do you see jesus more clearly as he is this morning do you see him on the cross carrying your sin debt looking down at you declaring like the paralytic your sins are forgiven Son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now go and do likewise. Let us pray. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Dearly Father, all of us sometimes question and doubt whether it is true that God, that God, through Jesus, you do look down on us. Despite our many, many innumerable sin. And as we talked about not last week, not just the, the things that we do, but the entire orientation of our lives and our hearts against you and toward ourselves. You forgive us even for that. Renew our faith in the gospel.
as Jesus says, to repent and believe in the gospel, not just to get into the kingdom, but the way of living in the kingdom. Help us to see, God, that all of our sin is ultimately sin against you. Help us to see that you are a good and righteous judge who delights in forgiving your children. Help us to never tire of coming before you with our need. Help us to present one another as those friends did those paralytic to the paralytic. Help us to present one another before Christ and say, help us. We need you. We thank you so much for the gospel. The gospel of free forgiveness in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's nothing that we can do. And we're so thankful that you have accepted us in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.